0: Hey, good morning, OCC. How are you guys doing today? Oh, man, I hope you're doing better than that. How are you guys doing today? All right. Yeah, it's great to have you with us, even on this soggy day, whether you're in person. and it's, Man, I just love seeing so many faces here. We're opening up a little bit more, bit by bit. Man, it just feels good having so many you join us online. It's great to have you with us. Well, hey, we were made for marriage with the Lamb. The problem is marriage doesn't work real well when you've got another lover. Uh, That's the picture we see in Revelation. That's the picture we see throughout Scripture. It is God created us humans in his own image so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could be his people and he would be our God and we would be together with him. The problem was our earliest ancestors, they chose other lovers. They broke that relationship and that just doesn't go well. But God, in his goodness, had a rescue plan for us. So he, he created a people for himself, drew these people to himself, that the nation of Israel created for him to be his people again. He, he formed these people. He called them so that they could be in this marriage-like relationship. He'd be theirs. They'd be his. They'd be together in this thing. But unfortunately, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they chose other lovers. They allowed their hearts' affections to go on to other things. They chose to prioritize other things above God, their own comfort, their own pleasures, other gods. But God, in his goodness, did not give up on his rescue plan. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to to show us what God is like, to show us what being human is supposed to look like to be in this relationship with God. He sent Jesus to restore that relationship, to fix all that was broken, to reconcile us. Jesus gave his life on a cross so that we could have life forever. Jesus took our sin, our shame, our messiness, And he gave us his righteousness. That's what it's supposed to look like. But even still, even with all of that happening, even with Jesus loving us in such a way so that we could be made right with God, even now, we, his people, who know of all of God's love for us, who know of his faithfulness to us, we still choose other gods. We still choose other lovers. And that's the picture of Revelation, the picture of the Bible all the way through. That's the picture John is painting for us in Revelation chapters 17 through 20, borrowing so much from the Old Testament, blending the imagery from Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Genesis and on and on throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. He's wrapping all these images into one. And he brings us to this, chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten hordes and blasphemies against God were written all over it. Now, here he's painting this picture of this, this imitation, right? The, the, the beast is imitating the lamb with horns and crowns and blasphemies and words written on it. It's an imitation game throughout Revelation. The beast and the dragon are imitating God. And so the woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. And I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. There's a lot going on there. Well, we start with a couple of words, but one, one word really that we just don't like to talk about these days. Right? There's a word that nobody wants to mention. It doesn't feel like a churchy word anymore. We we shouldn't say it in church. I mean, it almost feels wrong to say. It. And I'm not talking about the word prostitute or adultery. or anything. I mean, that listen, that word we don't like to speak of. That I mean, it, that feels unsettling to hear that in church. But it's all the way through. Like from very old back in the prophets, we see this picture of of prostitution of adultery being the metaphor for our idolatry that whenever we put something else in the place that God alone is to have in our hearts and our lives the picture is that's idolatry which the picture painted for us is adultery it's like we're playing with a prostitute but that's not the word that really gets people tripped up here the word judgment is now we just don't like the word judgment it sounds judgy <laughs> It just sounds uncomfortable, like judgment. No, we want happiness. Preacher, just put me at ease. The problem is I can't because it's all over this text. It's all over this book of the Bible. It's all over the Bible that there is a judgment. So we've got we to kind of dig into that. And so the picture that's painted for us is this picture of Babylon. Now, in the Old Testament, Babylon represented like evil, all right, Babylon, the, the nation, was known for its obscenities and its wealth, its power, its violence, its immorality, its oppression of others. And so this imagery of Babylon has been translated into the book of Revelation. This picture that's painted here, this prostitute in Revelation, personifies the economic and military oppression of Rome on her people and other people's. And so we see this picture that Rome is Babylon. Rome is the prostitute. Not that Rome is the only one. It's just the most recent one that John's audience could relate to. It's the one that they were face-to-face with. But but Babylon, the picture in Scripture is that Babylon's will come and go. These nations will rise and fall, and that's what they do. They rise, and they oppress, and they use violence, and they use their might, and they use their power, and then they end. We see that again and again and again. Nations rise and nations fall, and God still stands supreme. So this picture that was painted is that that will happen. It's a sad portrait, a sad commentary on the human condition that we continue to chase after these other things. From all the way back to creation, all the way till now, this is what happens. We've chased after other lovers, and we've put them in the priority place that God alone deserves, and we've let our heart's affections get onto the wrong things. We don't have time to dig into all the passages, all the, the verses in these uh, four chapters today. I'm going to encourage you to read that on your own as I would every week. So, so I'm just going to summarize some of it. The next thing we see here is that this Babylon, this, this great prostitute, this evil empire, that it turns on itself. That she's playing with the beast, but the beast turns on her and actually kills her, devours her, like slays her. And that's what happens. The evil always turns on itself. It always implodes from within because that's the way evil's wired up. It's just going to do that. It's like the bad guy villain in every Hollywood movie who doesn't care about the other bad guys. He's going to, I mean, they're expendable. He's going to throw them to the side because he just doesn't care as long as he can get ahead. That that's kind of the picture of evil going on here. And so this spirit of Babylon, that this idea that we can be sufficient without God, that we are as like gods unto ourselves, that that's the picture being painted for us here, that throughout history, that there's this idea of, of self-sufficiency that tries to seduce us to think that we can chase wealth and power and comfort and be OK without God. But that idea always fails. It always turns on itself. It will always turn on you always. That's what evil does. So we have this picture, though. The beast turns on the prostitute, and the prostitute, Babylon, falls. She falls, and with her comes the demise and the destruction of everything, everywhere. Because everyone has bought into the lie that we don't need God. That we're okay on our own. And this lie is pervasive. So John paints for us in this next passage this gruesome picture of Babylon fallen, this carcass, this carrion. Laying on the ground, being picked by the vultures. This disgusting meal of sorts. And he paints that meal for us. And he, and he says this to Jesus. He says, listen, you were made for something more than that. You were made for more than just chasing after the Babylon wealth. You were made for more than the prostitute. God gives us this warning. He says, come away from her, my people. Don't take part in her sins or you will be punished with It's a warning. Don't be seduced by that woman. Don't play games with a prostitute. You'll lose. It's not good for you. See, the people of God were made for marriage to the lamb, not for adultery with a prostitute. Because marriage just doesn't work well when you have another lover. when we allow our hearts to be seduced to pursue things other than God and his righteousness for us. And so when Babylon falls, and she does, then all those who played her game weep and mourn for her. We, we, we see this in the next passage, that the merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. See, they were in this with her because they were benefiting from it. This symbiotic relationship, and and what's painted for us here is that the next thing that happens is this funeral dirge of sorts, this lament song from the rich and the wealthy, the merchants and the shipbuilders, and everyone who played the prostitute's game and benefited from her economic dealings. And so they're crying out, "Well, what happens to us now? We're we're at the end." And what we see is this commentary on the economic oppression of Rome. Uh, on the filthiness of Rome's economy, of how it oppressed other people so they could get ahead, how they took over other places, how they treated their own people poorly so that that those in charge could come away with money. And and listen, this is a warning for us as much as it's been a warning for every people before us for the last 2,000 years. I, I think God is nudging us to examine ourselves. That it just seems right that we would, we would ask if the way we make and spend our money is in accordance with how God would have us do it. Is what we do with our money, the way we get it, the way we give it, th- does it line up with God? Is it ethical? Is it fair? Is it just? Does it exploit the world? Does it, does it exploit God's creation, His earth that we are supposed to be taking care of? Does it exploit some person somewhere, some child working in a, Sweatshops, some family that's been enslaved in a third world country or in some other communist country, some place where they've been taken captive, that they're treated poorly. Does does me buying my stuff on the cheap cost them pretty much everything? Now, I'm not going to pretend that the answers to these kinds of questions are easy. They're not. I I can justify, I buy cheap stuff here so that I can give more money to the kingdom over there. The problem is, if my buying it on the cheap actually is working against kingdom principles here, that doesn't help. And and these are really complicated issues. But issues that we have to address, that we have to wrestle with. Issues that I have become much more aware of as I have studied through this. And as I've read the commentaries, and I'm coming face to face with even how I deal with my own money so I'm just going to invite you into that because misery loves company. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> but church, we need to look at the way we make and the way we give our money. Do we in any way support the industry that leverages sex because sex sells? With what we buy, with where we spend, with how we make, what are we doing to the vulnerable in the world? It's it's complicated But we've got to examine it. We've got to examine our our lives. We've got to look and see, am I more of a consumer of worldly things? Am I more of a consumer of comfort than I am a contributor to the kingdom? Am I investing my resources as much as I can into kingdom advancement? That's what I love about my buddy Shane. That's what I love about CFR is what they do with their money. Helps build churches. Helps advance the kingdom. It, It helps individuals when we trust our money to them. We know that we can trust them to be kingdom-minded about it. To guard that it's not going to certain things. That it's going to be leveraged to build the kingdom and invest in God's glory. That, that, that puts me at least a little bit more at ease. Because you see, the people of God were made for marriage to the Lamb, not to be sleeping with the prostitute. Because marriage just doesn't work well when we have other lovers. And if there is one other love in the lives of the American church pretty commonly it's our money so church we got to examine what we do with it well well john He's talking about this prostitute, the economic oppression. And, and, he, and then all of a sudden, he turns the picture. He moves us from this, this picture of the prostitute to a picture of a bride, beautifully dressed, waiting for a banquet feast at the wedding. So we move from the carrion carcass and the vultures picking apart Babylon to this beautiful wedding feast. And we see this in Revelation 19. And then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or what sounded like the roar of a mighty ocean wave, or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, came this Loud roar for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to Him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and His bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, a picture of victory and purity. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Let's pause there for a moment. Good deeds. We don't get to the wedding feast by our goodies. We don't get to heaven by goodies. We can't good deed our way into heaven. That's not what this is saying. But when we acknowledge Jesus, when we surrender to him, when we serve him, when we follow him, when we allow him to be savior and leader in our lives, then our deeds begin to express it. Our actions, our words begin to change. People can look at us and say, that person must follow Jesus. That's what this is getting at. These good deeds, the fine linen we wear... We love God, we love others. It boils down pretty simply to that. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Whoa, 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 hold on, wait a second. We're at a wedding feast. <clears throat> heaven opens up. Certain things you don't want to do in a microphone. So then I saw heaven opened up like a door, right? This door opens up. We're at a wedding feast. The door opens. You would expect to see we're with the bride. We're with all the guests. We'd expect to see the groom. No, we see a white horse. What? It's rider was named faithful and true for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. John has just rocketed. us. I mean, this is like whiplash. We're at a wedding. Now it's a war picture. We've moved from wedding to war. From wedding to war. And the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen. Followed him on white horses. White linen. Again, a picture of victory and purity. You'd expect to see the armies of heaven dressed in armor. Dressed, ready for battle. They're dressed as though they've already won. Listen, you don't walk into a fight saying, give me my nice white robe. (laughs) You say, give me my armor. Give me my shield. Give me my stuff, my sword, my gun, my tank. Not my white linen. And from the mouth of the one on the soor- of the horse came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title: King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Yeah, gives us a little encouragement. So we've moved. The carcass of the prostitute to the wedding feast to a war picture. And here we have Jesus on his horse. Now, for time's sake, we didn't read all of the passage. He he is wearing red. His army is in white, but he's wearing red. Now, some people say, oh, he's wearing red. That's the, the blood splatter of his enemies. The problem is, he hasn't gone to battle yet. This is before the battle. So here's Jesus soaked in red, stained crimson, not by the blood of his enemies, but remember, he's the lamb slain for us. That's where the victory came, that he took the cross and stood victorious over it. That's his own blood. So his army is wearing white only because he is wearing red. That's the only way we get to wear the white linen. It's because he chose the crimson stains. And so his army is with him. And we see this picture that he's He's wielding a sword. Now, now, don't get confused here. Some people can do some messy things with this sword stuff. Listen, the sword is from his mouth, not in his hand. It's not a battle sword that he's swinging to chop people down. The sword is the word of God. It's Hebrews 4.12. The word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is his sword. That's what he uses to judge the world at the end of the world. So so don't confuse us that we as God's people is to be this righteous army amassing our armament and and swinging some sword in the hand. Now, if there's a sword we swing, it's, it's the word of God. It's not like we don't advance the kingdom with violence or aggression or malice. We don't advance the kingdom by some holy war kind of mentality. We advance the kingdom the way Jesus advanced the kingdom through a cross. Now that's a tall order for us as people. The the kingdom advances always and only through a cross. Which means we surrender ourselves. We sacrifice ourselves in love for other people. Even unto death, if that's what it costs, like we talked of last week. If you missed that one, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. The kingdom advances through a cross. And that's what we should be about. Surrendering to the point of bearing truth and love so that others might join in and be invited to the feast. So this is this picture we have this, this picture of war of heaven's army amassing the, the rider on the white horse and all of revelation has been like moving towards this one moment, this climactic moment. All of history has been moving towards this one climactic moment. It is the battle, the battle of heaven, the battle of history. Here it is. And so then we see this picture painted in chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the battle. Now, some people would say those are two different battles that happen, two different things. I disagree with that. Now, let me just make this statement. I'm going to say some things over the next several minutes that some of you might disagree with because of the details that we get into. I just want to tell you you're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Maybe. But I will say this. There are people who love Jesus, who are fiercely committed to his kingdom, who are chasing him, who are advancing the kingdom, who love God. And some of us are best friends, some of us are family members, and we totally disagree on some of the details. But we agree on the big picture. So there's room for the details to be a little, it's a little fuzzy. This is apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic literature. We're 2,000 years removed from the writing, from the culture, from that style of writing. There's going to be a little messiness here. So I'm pretty convinced on what I'm going to share with you, but I also hold it somewhat loosely because the big picture is what matters most. So let's not get divided on the details, church. Let's get united on the big picture. So, some people would say these are two different battles. I don't think so because in the Greek, they are both pulling from the same imagery, the same exact passage in Ezekiel, giving us imagery of this. So we have this battle two different perspectives like I think we see throughout Revelation – more than one perspective on the same thing. The language used in the Greek is a definitive article. The battle, the war. Not a battle, another battle, a war, one of them. It is the one spoken both times. It's the same thing we see in Revelation 16, verse 16, with this symbolic picture of Armageddon. I say symbolic because it's a, It's a spiritual war as well as what's going on in this world. And that plane is not big enough to have all those armies in that one spot. Geographically, that's just, it won't happen. So we have this symbolic picture of what God is up to at this point. Now there's also one other little piece there that's not so little that trips a lot of people up. We have this idea of a thousand year period that plays into this. We don't have enough time to dig into all the stuff with that. So let me say, some people think that the 1,000-year period is a literal time frame. 1,000 years, exactly. Some people think Jesus is coming back on the front side of that. Some say he's going to come back on the back side of that. And then there's people in the camp that I'm in who say it's symbolic and Jesus is going to come back in the end. But we're already in that 1,000-year period because it's symbolic, and that's the period of the church. So let me tell you why I think that. For one, that's the consistent view throughout the New Testament of the New Testament writers. When they spoke of the end times, it was as though they were already there in them. It was already happening. It was a consistent view of the early church for several hundred years, actually quite a few thousand years. Some of these ideas that we have over these things, I know there's been movies made, especially back in the 90s, and books written. All that was a pretty new idea in the 1800s. Before then, the consistent view throughout church history was that this was symbolic. Now, let me tell you another reason I I think this. Again, we're reading apocalyptic literature. There's so much symbolism here. Every number we've looked at so far is symbolic. I think a 1,000 years is symbolic also. It's a big time frame. In fact, when we look at other authors, like John is writing this one. Well, his buddy Peter, who wrote, still talking about the end of the world, in that context, he had some different kind of end times math. And he said this. He said, they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? It seems like he's taking a long time. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Bad things are happening. Bad things used to happen. It's still happening. Maybe it's getting worse, but nothing seems to change. And so Pete says, listen, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. That's Peter's end times math. A thousand years, big long period. We're kind of in this period. That means we're on about the third day in God's math. That means as bad as 2020 was, it lasted, if my math is right, which I don't guarantee that it is, but we're doing end times math, so it's okay. But if 2020 is bad as it was, according to this, it lasted about a minute and a half in heavenly language, eternal language. Don't we wish it would have been over in about a minute and a half? So there's something different going on here. He said the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake because he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, to face condemnation, to go to hell. No, he wants everyone to repent and be saved. But the day of the Lord is going to come as unexpectedly as a thief. It's going to come unexpectedly. Also, there are a lot of people who are trying to pinpoint when Jesus is coming back. Throughout our recent history and throughout all of history, they've all had one thing in common. They've been wrong. Every time we try to say this is when it's going to happen, it's wrong. So I don't put a whole lot of stock into those things that are chasing that stuff because that's not the point of the passage. The point is he's going to come back, and we're not going to be expecting it when it does, so be ready when it happens. That's his whole point is make sure you're ready because he's coming back. He's going to come back like a thief. Listen, do you expect to know when the thief is going to come in to your house? No. So you're ready all the time. You are guarded against it. We're not supposed to be trying to mark our calendars for some thousand year period. We're supposed to be ready at every moment because that could be the moment. No one knows exactly when he's coming back. Jesus said, you won't know. Don't try to find out. Don't get caught up in the sensationalism. Don't get caught up in all those details. Don't get caught up in the fear. Have hope that Jesus is coming back. And if you side with him, you're on the right side. That's the point of the passage. Now, some people believe that God is going to remove his people, remove the church from the world before this thousand year period. I, I just think that's inconsistent with the teaching of the New Testament. I think that's inconsistent. With Jesus' teaching. After all, Jesus said, Go in all the world and make disciples, teaching them about me. He said, Go everywhere and help everyone find and follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, How are people gonna know if no one's there to preach to them? That's a pretty clear indication that Jesus is sending us to the world. He doesn't remove us out of it, He sends us to them to help people know. So if the church is the hope of the world, it doesn't make much sense that the hope bringers, that the truth tellers, that the grace givers are absent when the world needs to hear the truth and hope the most. God's going to keep us in it. See, Jesus in his prayer in John 17, one of the last prayers that is recorded of him praying, in Psalm Prayer he said, Father, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, that's meaning us, not take my followers out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Keep them there. See, this take me away kind of theology really serves us, not God, it serves us, not his kingdom, it serves us, not the church, it serves us, not a hopeless, hurting world. And I get it. I I get the idea behind it. I think Jesus gets it. Because Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, prays to God, God, if there's any way that I can avoid that cross, if there's any way you can take the cup of suffering away from me, if we can just circumvent this cross thing, that'd be great. I'm not really looking forward to the cross. Father, is there any other way than the cross? Listen, if not, I'm in. Your will, not mine. If that's the way it's got to be, I'm going to do it. Just one last time, any other way? And the Father's response, endure and trust me. And Jesus went to the cross. See, the church moves headlong through the suffering. We don't get removed from it. The the church is the hope of the world in the suffering. I, I like how my friend Shane, who's A professor at Ozark Christian College says that the history of the church is one that is saturated by the blood of the martyrs. That when the world is at its worst, the church is at its best. When the world is at its darkest, the hope of Jesus shines brightest through his church. That God does not remove his people from the suffering, but he sends us headlong into it, in the midst of it, to bring hope and to bring joy and to bring people to salvation in it. That that's the message of the church. That's the picture we see right now as the church is growing most rapidly in the worst places you can imagine on this planet, even right now as we speak. That that's the picture of the church. So our confidence is then not shaken by momentary things like pandemics and gas shortages because our confidence is not in the things of this world our confidence is in the one who triumphed over Rome and the one who will triumph ultimately at the end he's coming back he wins and that's where our confidence is our confidence is not in how things are shaping up here but in the one who stands over and above it so until he comes we stay faithful that's the picture now, this 1,000-year period also seems to be the time between when Christ ascended back to heaven until he comes again in finality. And during that time, it's the period of the church reigning with him. That In heaven, we see the spiritually resurrected reigning with Christ for, uh, for that season, having yet experienced their physical bodily resurrection. And this is the period where the church shines as our chapter in the redemptive history of the world, that we get to partner with Jesus, that we have this honor of serving him as his body, as his church, to bring good news to the world. That that's what's going on in this period. And we're right there in the midst of it. That we've been in those days since Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, right before Jesus comes in finality, Satan is released and he amasses his army. We're not exactly told why he's released, who does it, why it's happening. That's a mystery. Don't try and figure it out because Scripture tells us we don't know. So don't try and spend your time there. We just know that Satan will amass his evil army to do battle against God. Now, all those details, you might agree, disagree with some of them. Listen, that's all right because we can agree on the big thing because Right then, Satan is amassing his evil army, and then Jesus returns, and this is the big picture, right? This is what all of history has been coming up to. This is what the entire Book of Revelation has been coming up to. The climactic battle, where the battle, the, the army of evil, and the army of God are gonna come up against, and if you're waiting for like the Braveheart battle scene, if you're waiting for the Rocky Balboa boxing match kind of moment, you're gonna be disappointed, because it's done. Like, there is no exciting fight scene. Like the whole of everything comes up and you're like, oh, this is going to be a great fight scene. Let's see what happens, man. Pay-per-view. I spent my money for that. Like it reeks more of a fixed fight than anything. And some people have this idea that Satan is is the evil co-equal of God. He's not. Satan is limited. Listen, God is all-knowing. Satan is not. Has limited knowledge. God is everywhere present. Satan is not. He is limited to fixed locations. God is all powerful. Satan is not. He's powerful. He's not all powerful. You you want a fair fight? You you put some angels like Gabriel or Michael up against Satan. You put God the Father against him? Man, a lame fight. Boom, it's done. Like don't spend your pay-per-view on that one, okay? The fight doesn't last a moment. In a moment, Satan is defeated. In a moment, all the cronies of hell are kicked back to hell. In a moment, death defeated. In a moment, Satan is bound and he's thrown into the lake of fire. In a moment, Babylon falls and is thrown to destruction. And all those who have sided with her are there as well. Into this, what I believe is a symbolic lake of fire. What John is telling us is, listen, think lake of fire. That's kind of this weird imagery, a fire that burns, a lake that burns. What? Well, he's saying, maybe it's lava. I don't know. But he's saying, as bad as you can imagine, it's going to be even worse. All right? You, like, you've gotten paper cuts all over, and then you swim in lemon juice. It's worse than that, okay? Like, this, this is really, really bad. He's giving us this picture. As bad as you can imagine, it's worse. And you don't want to be on the wrong side when, when, when Jesus returns and Satan is defeated. And so we have in this one moment, it's over. God wins. Satan loses. Good triumphs, evil fails. And church, we should have a lot of hope in that as long as we're following on the right side. Like that is a happy victory moment. Now, the big picture here is that God vindicates his people. They are not losers, they are winners. They don't die, they live forever with him. And that's really good news. So the big takeaway for us is that an end is going to come. And when it comes, judgment comes with it. So be ready. Listen, I say an end is going to come. Because one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to face your end or the end. It's either going to be the end of everything or the end of you. One of those ends is going to come. Because so far, history has proven us pretty accurate that one out of every one people dies. We face death at some point. It's going to happen. Are you ready when it does? Because we come to this idea of judgment, that when that happens, this is what John says. He says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. And I saw the dead, both great and small, because death does not discriminate. And they were standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Listen, if you're hoping that your good deeds get you into heaven... That that when you're judged according to what you've done, if you're looking for the book of good deeds to get you there, you're going to miss out on the feast with the lamb. It ain't happening. None of us have done enough good. God's standard is perfection, is holiness, is purity, and none of us measure up. So in that moment, death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. And anyone and everyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, this is the book where you want to find yourself. Don't worry about the book of deeds. You want to find yourself in the book of life. And the only way to get into the book of life is to put your life in the hands of Jesus. To know you need a savior, and it's not you, it's him. To know you need a leader, it's not you, it's him. And listen, you can't be good enough to get yourself there. And you need a savior, you need a leader. And that's not just a once and done, I'm gonna jump into the baptistry, get a little wet, go for a swim, and then I'm good to go on my own way again. No, it means that if you want Jesus to save you, you gotta let him lead you. And that's every day. That means you wake up and you die to self and you come alive for him. And the great thing is, that's really a better life anyway. He leads way better than we do. So an end is gonna come. Are you ready? Church, I know that it's not popular it's not fun, it's not pleasant to talk of hell. But it's real. And we're not going to skirt that issue. The driving factor for me is I don't want anybody to go there. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you got to get on the right side, Army. you, you got to saddle up with Jesus. And, and, and here's what I know. Sometimes we talk about God being like vindictive or angry, that that this whole judgment thing is a picture of an angry God. And how can a loving God do that? Listen, I'll tell you how a loving God does that. It's because that's a jacked up view of God, that this is anger. No, this this is a spouse defending his bride. It's vindication and protection for his loved ones. That's what this is a picture of. That God says, my bride will be defended and vindicated. Anybody who talks bad of my wife, you better believe you're gonna see a different side of fits. Come out, come alive at that moment. I don't care how big, I don't care how tough, I'll go get a truck if I get into drive. It. Listen, you're not gonna talk bad of my, my bride. And that's me and my human flawedness. What do you think about the Savior of the world? What do you think about God the Father and His bride, the church? Listen. Anybody who tells you God is angry and he's vindictive and how could a loving God, let let me tell you about a loving God. A loving God creates people in his image to be in relationship with him. And then when they go astray, he still pursues them to the point of death on a cross to redeem them and pull them back. He does everything he can to offer us a way out of the judgment. The cross demonstrates God's love for us. There's no question if God loves us. That's, That's just absurd. That's not even a question does God love us. The question is whether we love him. So, church, that's what we got to answer today. Do you love him? And listen, I've been doing pastoral ministry for a little over two decades now. And in that time, I've done a lot, I've done a lot of marriage counseling for couples who are in crisis, for couples in trouble. And I'll tell you this there's one truth that I'll tell you every time. See, we were made for marriage with the Lamb. But marriage doesn't work well when you have another lover. So, anytime a couple comes to me and there's a third party at play, the first thing you got to break ties with that other lover. you, you got to cut ties. you gotta, you got to create some separation. Delete the accounts. Delete the contact info. Throw all that stuff away. Break ties. You, you end it right then. Because marriage doesn't work well when you have another lover. So church, what is it that's stealing your heart from Jesus? What are the other affections in your life that you need to end, that you need to break ties with? And maybe some of them are good things that have just gotten too much priority because they take more priority than Jesus. So whatever that is that's competing with the place that Jesus alone should have in your life, you got to cut those ties, you got to break that, and you got to chase after Jesus. If you want him to save you, you got to let him lead you because you were made for marriage with the Lamb. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who pursues us and who loves us, that from the very beginning you created us to be with you, that you would be our God and we would be your people and we would be with you. And God, that's a picture we're going to see next week when this whole story wraps up. And so God, you are slow in coming because you don't want anyone to face judgment, but you want us to find repentance and salvation through your son, Jesus. And so God, that's my prayer. For any of those who are here today online or in this room who don't know you, who have not yet chosen you, I pray that right now would be their moment, their moment of declaration to say, Jesus, you alone are savior and I surrender to you. Jesus, you alone are leader and I will follow you. And God, for those of us who have made that declaration, we have some work to do in our hearts. Because we've been seduced. We're in an area where we're not having to worry about persecution. But we have to worry about the seduction of this world. And Babylon has been calling us. So God, may our hearts get right with you. Give us the courage to be fiercely repentant and examine ourselves. And call out all the things that have competed with you. To surrender afresh to you. And to choose the way of the cross which is the way of life. Jesus, we pray this for your glory.